0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Strong jobs numbers drive Wall Street up as continued fiscal uncertainty rules in Washington, the White House approved M1 tanks for Ukraine, clearing the way for Germany to allow Leopard users to join America and Britain and sending heavy armor to Kiev as Russia steps up its campaign to retake territory. All eyes are now on Western powers, whether air power will follow. A huge earnings week as Boeing, CACI, Crane, General Dynamics, Hexel, L3 Harris, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon Technologies, Teledyne, uh, Textron, and other companies report As for major news items, Boeing will hire 10,000 more folks to meet demand. Northrop said the B-21 bomber is running behind schedule. Raytheon will reorganize into three divisions, and Sikorsky has won uh, a major award. This as Lockheed Martin uh, and Boeing protest the uh, future long-range assault aircraft contract award to Bell. All eyes are on Airbus's returns coming in February the 16th. uh, And one of our number wrote a tremendous uh, note. uh, Looking forward to that event. Joining us now to discuss all this and more are Dr. Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in sunny Washington, D.C. Everybody, welcome back to the program. Always a pleasure having you on. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much, Jago. Always a pleasure. Yeah, great to be on, Vago. Thank you. Thanks uh, indeed to all of you. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, Fortress Information Securities. Sponsors our weekly cyber report, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and uh, naval coverage. And I should note, Leonardo DRS, HII and GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company, uh, sponsored our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's uh, recent annual symposium. Run. Uh, start us off uh, on uh, the broader market: positive jobs numbers uh, and a huge earnings week. I'm gonna we're going to discuss earnings in a little bit greater detail in a moment. But talk to us um, about how the aerospace and defense group uh, performed, and include as much. You know right earnings specific uh, performance in that as, as you as you need to before we dive into uh, the depths of some of the the news items because there was a lot a lot of news to unpack this week. Sure. Um, if you
1: look at the SP as a broad gauge, it was up about two and a half percent on the week. Um, uh, the 10-year yield has been hovering around three and a half percent now for almost you know two months and it's still there. Uh, the VIX uh, is hovering at the lower end of its range. You know, it's been in that range between about 19 and uh, 30, and it's around 19 right now. Uh, oil prices really haven't changed all that much this week. WTI is around 80, and Brent crude's around 87, and it's been relatively steady there. Um, so uh, you, you had a you know a big, big uh, earnings week across many different sectors. Um, if you look at some of the individual performance that we discuss every week, let's just look at some of the large caps. Boeing was up about 2%, a little bit behind the market. Uh, Northrop Grumman was down about 3%. uh, And we can unpack that a little bit later because there's, I think, some stuff to talk about there. Uh, Lockheed Martin was up about 3.5%. L3 Harris was the champ on the week, up around 10%, was all said and done. Most of that was on Friday when they reported. Uh, And Raytheon Technologies was up about 5.5% on the week. Um, and maybe I'll just kind of you know end this with just a couple of quick comments expectations for defense across the board were pretty low going into the quarter um so I think you saw unless there was a, a company specific thing that kind of threw a curveball, um, defense largely you know outperformed the market uh, because of that um you know defense earnings were okay uh, but you know every company can kind of you know pick their pick their stuff uh and then you know Boeing probably the big news there was, uh, that you know they're having difficulty ramping up uh, the 787. Uh, they they said they'd get to five per month on 787 production rates later than they anticipate anticipated late in the year, which in Boeing speak, which is kind of like you know in Boeing speaks, they're sort of like the Fed. You have to unpack it. It probably right. implies that they don't get to you know five per month until maybe sometime next year. Um, And there's some more stuff to talk about there. But I think that's where we were on the week.
0: Uh, Sash, uh, great. Uh, You were the one of our number who wrote the great preview note. Uh, Obviously, Airbus reporting on the 16th. Uh, Bank of England uh, (coughs) poised uh, for a rate uh, increase. Uh, We saw a little bit of revenue and custom news right after the prime minister got in trouble for not buckling his seatbelt. Uh, he asked for the resignation of one of his cabinet members. Um, but more importantly, sort of how did the group in Europe uh, perform, uh, right? I mean, we've got um, Germany clearing the way for uh, leopard tanks uh, to be exported by many users and many users have, have lined up and said that we would. So Germany is not only transferring its vehicles. There were a number of other nations that have agreed to transfer their vehicles uh, to uh, the Ukrainians as well. This is the Russians really do step up uh, their assault and an interesting event. We don't know what exactly happened. Um, in Iran uh, yesterday, uh, but it was something, uh, and the Iranians say they successfully thwarted a drone attack uh, on a workshop, which might have been an ammunition plant, uh, and it's interesting that we don't have all that much more reporting uh, than uh, than that. Uh, anyway, walk us through how the group performed in Europe this week.
2: Yeah, okay. Uh, look, uh, frankly, the group didn't perform very much uh, this week. Uh, European stocks up, or the European Aerospace Defense stocks up an average of under one percent civil military pretty much no differentiation there were a couple of standouts uh, leonardo's up six and a half percent um are not very much i mean you know standard press releases but nothing substantive at all hence up about four percent that's probably more related to the uh news about leopard tanks i'll come back to that uh in a second and then um rolls royce uh, up you know, up 3%. Rolls-Royce's CEO put out, or new CEO, uh, Tufan egan village put out a, uh, a sort of did an interview um, this week where he said, you know, it's a burning platform. We really have to reform the company. So uh, I suppose the good news is he gets it. He's he's done his homework and he realizes that, you know, Rolls-Royce is a, is a very distant number three at the moment in aero engines. Um, the bad news is that he now owns the problem and has got, has got to Got to do something about it, but I think over, you know the, um, we're still a couple of weeks away from uh, earnings for most European uh, companies, and um, so they really weren't tracking the uh, the US uh, stocks uh, this week at all. Yeah, um, so I mean, I know everyone's going to talk about uh, some of the details later, but I mean, on Airbus, we um, uh, we put out a note last week, and our, our concern with Airbus, and you know, this was very much triggered by some of the comments in the press about uh, a low. Uh, starting production rate for 2023. There's been some very good Reuters uh, coverage on that. And really our concern is that Airbus exited 2022 at a much lower rate than we expected. Um, There was a real difference between Airbus and Boeing. Boeing clearly worked over Christmas and beyond. Uh, I don't think anybody got very much Christmas leave. Airbus, by comparison, I think fairly much gave up in December. Um, They exited the year 22 aircraft light of our forecasts, And it's becoming very apparent to us that Airbus has got a quality problem. It's custom, I think Boeing has as well, incidentally. John Pluger of uh, L.E. says they are, they both are doing a very bad job on quality at the moment. But Airbus clearly recognizes that they cannot simultaneously ramp production at the rate that they were looking at and get on top of the quality problems. Uh, and I think that, you know, Airbus has just decided to wind back a bit. Um, stop doing obviously se- or try to stop doing out of sequence work and uh therefore to um uh, you know redress the quality problem even if that means they're going to miss their, their production ramp target which we think they will do uh so you know if you look at consensus for uh airbus deliveries of 2023 it's come down from about 800 to probably the low 700s now that feels about right we're, we're on 730. um but i think that it's going to be a very back-end loaded year again, and that is not good for cash flow. And they're not going to get to rate 65 until end of next year or 2025. They're not going to get to rate 75 until into the second half of the decade. That will still leave them ahead of Airbus. I'm oh, sorry, ahead of Boeing. So, you know, does Airbus should Airbus care very much? Probably not. But they're going to have to talk to a lot of customers who they promised their uh, aircraft uh, to earlier. Just one other point that I think is worth thinking about, you know. Substantially, the supply chain problems are engines first, interiors second, other stuff, I think is, is a long way third. Airbus's biggest problems seem to occur on programs where they have pratt and the engines. The A320neo, yeah, sure, but actually, the one that people don't tend to talk about enough is the A220neo, or sorry, A220, um, which has got the turbofan engine, and it's got a ton of, of Collins avionics and, and uh, other aircraft systems as well. And... Our takeaway from this is that Airbus has got to start or is starting to just consider whether they are over uh, reliant on you know, of Raytheon technologies in general. Um, and, uh, you know, whether they actually lack negotiating power with Raytheon because Raytheon is so big uh, now. And therefore Airbus aren't able to, uh, to get them to, to you know jump when they want to. If that's the case, that's actually very, very good news for Rolls-Royce, who was on the naughty step before. Pretty good news, actually, for G and Safran as well. But I think, you know, Raytheon is becoming the supplier problem forever. Uh,
0: and, and and certainly interesting. And obviously, we're going to talk a little bit about the reorganization of the company, it, uh, you know, questions, uh, certainly a little bit about cultural challenges, right? I mean, anytime you do, you know, mergers of companies that are the project of multiple mergers, uh, product of multiple mergers, it causes uh, some cultural issues, which I think uh uh Greg Hayes and the team uh they were trying to address. Uh Richard, kind of walk us through what are sort of the the big stories that you have in mind and and comment on any of this because Ron, uh, you know, we're about to get into the cycle where we talk about uh what the Boeing news means, what the Lockheed news means. I mean, obviously big news in the delay of the B-21, although it is, you know, an advanced development program. Uh and you know we we heard uh, uh from Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall uh, late last year we talked to him at the Reagan uh forum we're mentioned, you know, look, it's, 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 it's doing as well as a major program does no fat, no faster, no better, no, nor worse. Uh, And I would point out to folks that we talked to Secretary Kendall last week for our air power program, uh, where he talked about also new launch, uh, uh, you know, a little bit about, uh, you know, the importance of air power, but also some of the things that are coming down uh, the road. And we're going to talk about those programs, or what we think those programs are in a minute, but just want to get your take uh, on on all of this and anything else you want to talk about.
3: Yeah. Well, uh, lots to discuss. Let's uh, focus on uh, three or four key themes and trends. One, of course, looks like we're going to spend another year wrestling with the aftermarket monster. You know, I I think a a lot of folks, when things began, the recovery began, um, you know, sometime in in 2020, late 21, really, mid 21, said this is going to be an 18 month process. Well, no, it's not. Uh, looks like another year of wrestling with the supply chain monster uh, for just about everybody. Uh, closely related. You know, B twenty one. I don't think this is a story necessarily just about execution and Northrop Grumman turning out to be, you know, not absolutely superhuman. I think a lot of people would say, "Wow, this is amazing. They're incredible." And you know, they're they have their own vulnerabilities. But more importantly, I just never saw how any fixed price contract could escape the horrible monster of inflation. It may or may not be abating. It looks like it is, but you've got this you know, past year of crazy labor, materials, whatever else going up. How could you sign, how could you have these fixed price signed contracts and not see an impact on margins? So I think some of this is going to be an endless dialogue, you know, between contractors saying basically, hey DOD, when we signed these, we really didn't know. And while there is some inflation allowable in some of these contracts, you really need to expand the boundaries of what is permissible because we just had you know, the worst year in almost half a century. So please give us some concessions here. That's going to be an interesting dialogue. I think that's what a lot of this is about. Um, Another theme I think that's come up is the importance of the aftermarket and the recovery as a main driver, because, uh, you know, obviously new build perhaps isn't going to be quite as spectacular. God knows for a recovery year. last year was truly underwhelming. And that's just going to continue uh, per Sash's uh, rather excellent note there. And so a lot of people are focused on the aftermarket. You're seeing a significant expansion, both in volumes and in margins, as you might expect, because you know during the bad times, uh, you had airlines destocking, you had people deferring maintenance. So inevitably, you're going to have this big, fast comeback, both in parts and wrench turning and whatever else. Uh, Collins uh, over at Raytheon uh, reported a 21% year-over-year fourth quarter. That's pretty good. Pratt 11%. You're going to see more double digits for everybody who are heavily uh, dependent upon aftermarket for profits and and, and revenue. Going to be a great year for the aftermarket. Um, And then lastly, there's China as the sort of great new hope here. You've got- quite a lot of return to flight plans, not just for the 737 MAX, which has certainly been in the news, but uh, China in general in terms of air travel. And there's so much runway because, of course, they're only at about 30 percent of peak demand, something like that, the last measure. So, you know, it could be some some decent times ahead. It's just that I think for, you know, metalheads like me, we've been looking for growth through new build. But well, given the aftermarket, I think we might just have to look elsewhere. And per Iran's Point, you know, defense is understandably muted too, partly for supply chain, partly because of whatever other factors. And, uh, you know, this might just be more and more of an aftermarket story, and China.
0: Uh, and uh, and uh, obviously with China, right, I mean, the decoupling continues as Japan and the, and the Netherlands uh, decide to join the United States in restricting uh, chip making technology going uh, to uh, China, which was also sort of another, uh, you know, big step. But, you know, I, I think everybody knew how this was going to end up. Uh, and so uh, that's that's interesting, and and then that has AI implications as well as we've discussed on the program. Uh, it does. Right. I mean, to
3: add to that, it's, it's particularly yep. important because the Dutch make the lithography machines that are so important for the development of a of a chip industry. So I think it was a very big development indeed. And the more the West keeps unified, the more likely it is that you know we can hold the line. And it has to be multilateral
0: in this uh, this 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 uh, effort uh in in, in in indeed uh and it, and it does show uh you know sort of global unity uh at a, at a, at a time uh at an important time um Ron, uh, enormous amount of earnings news, uh, right? Whether it was uh, at Boeing, uh, you know, uh, Sash just hit on a couple of those themes, Uh, you know, uh, the B21 news, uh, the Raytheon reorganization, L3 doing well. uh, And as you said, right, I mean, that kind of helped reporting late in the week uh, to to end up with a little bit of a a bump and a bounce. Kind of walk us through what, you know, general dynamics, obviously, you know, in demand, uh, you know, making tanks in the U.S. Army, looking at, at new tanks or pulling to- pulling Polish tanks off the line and making modifications. Of- anyway, I mean, it's going to take a number of different directions. Well, what were sort of the big themes and storylines that jumped out uh, for you that you thought were most important?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so maybe let's start on defense and then we can go over to commercials. Um, I think probably one of the more interesting things this quarter was given all the noise coming out of the house, and uh, all the discussion around continuing resolutions and what's going to go on with the budget. And in fact, if you look at the defense stocks, um, the day after Speaker McCarthy got the gavel, they all started to unperform, right? I mean, you, just, you can just see it. But um, there was not many questions at all about what the where the budget's going. Pretty much every company, and historically, they tend to be more cautious in this kind of territory when you see, you know, political uncertainty on the Hill, pretty much across the board, every management team was like, yeah, budget's going up. Um, And they didn't get a heck of a lot of pushback from investors on that um, and questions on that. Uh, Questions were uh, uh, broadly across companies more program specific, you know, issues with the companies, you know, L3 Harris got a lot of questions on, uh, you you know, Aerojet Rocketdyne, uh, you know B21 at Northrop, you kind of pick your pick your thing at the companies, but there were the questions I think were were more aligned that way. Uh, and I think it's just sort of and I think the market's starting to figure out if you do end up in a continuing resolution or whatever happens in an upward budget environment, that's a very different kind of game than in a downward budget environment. Um, so I think the market's starting to figure that out. Um, now so that that was
0: I think I think one thing. To, and, and, um, and by the way, I should I should uh, briefly point out, right, I mean, speculation in Washington is uh, the administration's uh, budget, that will be out in March will be $30 billion, uh, right? I mean, there'll be a $30 billion bump that they're going to ask for, right, which then potentially can set the stage if, if, you know, Congress goes with it, there is normally more that members do, uh, right, ultimately. So, you know, some of these guys could be very optimistic, if they're picking up a little bit of the vibe uh, that the department appears to be putting down, right? And we heard from Secretary Kendall, twelve new starts in the Air Force. Uh, he wasn't specific about what those were because he can't because it's before the budget. But right, I mean, there there could be reasons why folks in the group are telegraphing kind of a positive message, even if you know there's that un- uncertainty up on the hill. Yeah, and and just to not we belabor it, but we've been here sort of before, and the
1: last time management teams were far more cautious but it was a totally different environment. So uh, right. I think that, that's important. Uh, the second thing, Boeing, I think actually gave a pretty sober, realistic view of what's going on out there. Uh, meaning in terms of what Richard uh, spoke about, supply chain difficulties, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And what that means, um, like I mentioned before, uh, they basically signaled you know, that 787 is gonna take longer to get to a rate than, than they thought. Um, if you look at uh, how many uh, 737s have been rolled out as of Thursday, it's only been 20 this month, right? So that's way down compared to what happened in January, and you know, a, a, again, it's back to the supply chain thing. Um, so that's like, as Richard said, that's something we have to keep an eye on. I think that was clear. Um, another point: um, it's going to be a great year for aftermarket. Um, you've got it's just simple. You've got more older airplanes flying around longer. They're gonna need right. parts and those airplanes aren't being parted out. And that's gonna play into the hands of every, every aftermarket um, uh, part supplier. So it's gonna be a good year um, for spare parts. On Northrop, you know, B-21, I think the real subtlety interesting thing there was, they agreed to some fixed price options for low rate initial production. Then the question becomes, okay, well, how many airplanes is that really? Um, they can't tell you, I guess, because of whatever reason, um, but it's not a lot of airplanes and then the full production is not agreed to at a fixed price. Right. Right. So it's, it, I think that's an important distinction, right? So out of the hundred airplanes in the program is low rate initial production, 10 airplanes or whatever, who knows, but it's the kind of the bridge from where we are in EMD to when we get to full production and EMD will continue while they're doing LRIP. So it's not like the program necessarily will be in a loss. Um, and in fact, what Northrop told the market was, they think they can hold the margins in the their um, uh, aeronautics segment constant given everything that's going on. So we'll see how it all plays out. Um, and if I were a betting person, I would imagine they'll get some relief uh, on pricing because of, because of inflation. Uh, Uh, And I would add on the program, they've taken about 120 million of positive EACs. So they're actually from a, you know, estimate of cost on the program. They're actually ahead of where they could be otherwise. So their execution is, you know, as you said, I mean, they're they're executing fine. You know, is it off the charts? Probably
0: not, but we've seen a lot worse execution on on programs. So we'll, we'll see there. And it's just just worth really quick to point out, uh, historically, right, at the time, a lot of these fixed price development contracts were uh, issued, right? I mean, the Air Force, uh, you know, w- listened to Boeing that, hey, look, you're just updating, you know, you'd already been working on this program for a couple of years, you're building airplanes, you should be able to do the KC-46 without tripping and falling down the stairs. And that turned out not to be the case. Uh, in the case of the B-21, there was a lot of effort done, classified effort, to test out specific elements of this these programs to reduce the risk on whoever it is that ended up winning. Uh, and so the whole idea was that they should be able to execute for this cost, uh, even though we put in certain mechanisms, right? I mean, so for it to be born, we have to agree to cost caps so that we didn't end up with another B2. The, the question is, right, that was 2016 when those or, or 2015 or whatever it was when those contracts uh were uh were issued originally, right? And and, and Northrop ended up winning it. Um any anything else uh you, you want to bring in? Um uh, yeah, two, uh, two, two more quick ones. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, two more quick ones. Um when Raytheon Technologies
1: reported, I think an interesting little nugget out of that was in the Collins aerospace business, in the piece that does aircraft interiors, they're really seeing not much demand for wide-body interiors. Um, And that just kind of, you know, plays into, you know, unless you're kind of a 787 or an A three fifty, the market for wide bodies is still very punky. We kind of knew that, but that just sort of reaffirms that. And what you'll generally see is wide body interiors pick up maybe a good six to nine months before, you know, that market picks up. And we just haven't seen that. And then finally, broadly on how the stocks have been trading, what we've seen in general, and we're seeing it in this group as well, folks that underperform, folks, companies that underperformed last year are you know, doing a reversion trade um, this year. Uh, so for example, L3 Harris was one of the worst performing of the larger cap defense stocks. Um, and you're seeing some reversion there too. So, and we're seeing that across our group. I think I mentioned this last week, but it still still holds true. If you look at the 10 underperforming stocks in our coverage last year, the bottom 10, we cover about 40 of the bottom 10, seven of those are in the top 10 this year. So you're really seeing kind of people
0: placing bets on last year's underperformance. Getting people uh, is one of the biggest challenges across industry, uh, especially for skilled trades. We're seeing that being a limiting factor in in shipbuilding uh, and in heavy industry. I mean, right? I mean, there are buildings all over Washington D.C. that says bricklayers wanted. Right? I mean, we don't have enough bricklayers. Is you know, is there like a magic wand Boeing's going to wave and get ten thousand technically trained folks to come aboard to help them build airplanes better?
1: No. I mean, it, I mean, they're no different than anybody else. So, you know, the, so the it's going to cost them. Well, the real issue is you can hire people. Then one, you have to retain them, right? Which is a challenge for everybody. Right. You know, we can talk about that separately. And then two, you have to train them all, right? So you're bringing right. in people that don't have that. Now, one, actually, actually, this is very important. You brought that up and Northrop brought this up on their call. And I thought this was an interesting nugget again, that, in areas where you need computer scientists, algorithm people, coders, um, they've been recruiting out of tech, and you know, right. as you know, tech's been laying off a lot of people. But those folks can't go on a factory floor, right? So, right. what you know, where you can get people out of tech to work in a defense firm is is limited to the roles that you know they're, you know, they have experience to do. But in the end, and it's not just Boeing, anybody that needs "quote unquote" bricklayers, they're going to have to train them. And you know, I mean, if you're a, a master bricklayer at a shipyard,
0: right, a master pipe fitter, it'd take a better part of five or six years to get to that level. The last 747 was delivered uh, on the 31st, or It is going to be delivered next week on the 31st it, uh, in just a couple of days. Um, does this, you know, basically doom Everett? That's a broader conversation to have, right? I mean, did, did Boeing indicate where these people would be hired? Uh, they did not. Because that would be that could be a kind of an interesting tell. And check out our weekly podcast, Cavas Ships, hosted by Chris Cavas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co host with our very own JJ Gertler. Uh, Sash and, and Richard, your take on all of this earnings, Boeing news. Uh, B-21, uh, the, the the whole thing before we go and talk a little bit about uh, defense and maybe a little bit about uh, decoupling. And certainly I have to get Sash's take on tanks uh, and Richard's take on whether or not airplanes follow, even though Secretary Kendall told us that the United States is happy to equip the Ukrainian Air Force after hostilities end. Uh, go go uh, go ahead, uh, Sash.
2: Yeah, actually, I, I've got nothing to add to, to what Ron said there. Um, it's probably better if Richard does that and then I can talk um,
0: tanks and stuff. Okay, perfectly fine. Richard, go ahead, take it away because there's, you know, you, you have the field wide open to you to run with the ball.
3: Yeah, you know, just to, of course, complete agreement with Ron, you know, this weird bifurcation, I shouldn't say it's weird, perhaps it's anticipated, but accelerated this bifurcation between the twin aisle and single aisle recovery has resulted in, you know, output by, you know, in favor of single ounce by a two to one margin and absolutely no signs of changing. And even the 787, 787 and A350 are easily the two most popular wide bodies right now. Even that just not exactly a whole lot of call for it. So this A321 disruption factor seems to be continuing along with a, a renewed appreciation for what smaller jets can do for you. Uh, I, I don't see this changing anytime soon. And yeah, pre your comment about Everett, there are profound industrial implications for just about everybody. Rolls-Royce too, you know, the single most dependent on wide bodies of any company, any large company in the A&D universe. And on the B-21? Well, you know, as I said before, it looks like a negotiation to me. I don't see how it could not dilute margins a bit. But you know, I think they'll I, I'll defer to Ron and say, yeah, they're almost certainly going to get some kind of relief. You know, I mean, there's so much dependent upon speci- dependence on specialized labor and exotic materials in this thing. I would think if anyone would say, hey, we are uniquely uh, vulnerable to the impact of cost increases in these areas, it would be the folks involved in the B-21.
0: Sash, I want to bring you in, right? Western tanks are finally headed to Ukraine. Britain, as usual, uh, led the way. Uh, you know, agreeing to send uh, a dozen or 14 uh, challengers, one of the world's finest tanks. Uh, Germany had said if, the, you know, Washington clears the M1, we will a- allow uh, Leopard users uh, to send their tanks, and a number have lined up uh, to do just that. Uh, in the United States, it does look like these, uh, the M1s might be new production, a little bit of concern about the uh, armor Uh, in them and whether or not there's a different composition armor. I mean, obviously, anybody who knows the M1 knows the armor has matured from the original Chabam armor uh, that uh, was uh, British uh, and uh, continues to be advanced uh, by the British. Uh, The United States was going to certain depleted uranium uh, composites. um, And I can understand reluctance to do that. We talked about this on the Friday show. Then just send older model vehicles, but just get them into the hands of troops. Send M1A1s. Uh, if, if you can, and just get them into the hands of Ukrainians as quickly as as possible, even though I think any diesel powered tank is is a better uh, tank uh, for the Ukrainians. Talk to us about what this decision means and what this means in terms of the opening door and what has to be next, because, you know, tanks was a, a self-imposed uh, limitation. We've blown past each one of these, um, starting with air defense, uh, now sending patriots, long range uh, fires, uh, and, and the Russians really are reconstituting, and they don't care how many casualties they take to claw back territory. Uh, and ultimately, the Ukrainians are going to need more capability. What does this entire episode tell us? Where is it we need to go next uh, in terms of the capability that the Ukrainians need? And Richard, want to get your sense on what this means for air power, right? I mean, a, a Dutch minister uh, at the time we were talking to Secretary Kendall, uh, you know, broached the idea that, hey, maybe we can send our F-16s uh, over there. Uh, Right. I mean, so this is a conversation that is, uh, you know, that might not wait until after the conflict's over. Go ahead, uh, Sash. And Richard, want to get your sense uh, as well.
2: Okay. so in the short term, what do the Ukrainians need? More tanks, more infantry fighting vehicles. Uh, Commitments so far are fewer than 100 tanks and two, three hundred infantry fighting vehicles. They need double or triple that. Um, Even 300 tanks gives you basically two brigades worth uh, of tanks. Um, uh, and also for six hundred uh, Um, You know these are very very small numbers so far, but it's a, it's a start, um, and it's it's more symbolic than anything else. I don't get terribly worried about the, the protection that the tanks we that we are sending have. Any tank that is sent from you know the arsenals of the West now has got way better protection than uh, a T seventy two or its derivative. I mean just immeasurably better. But also It's it's less about protection, and it's more about the quality of the firepower. Uh, It's been very apparent that neither the um, Ukrainians nor the Russians have actually been using their tanks what they're best at, which is killing other tanks. Um, And that's because they're clearly not very accurate. Uh, So there's been a lot of use of tanks uh, as a sort of mobile indirect fires platform, uh, and very, very little in the way of tank-on-tank action. What a Leopard, an M1, a Challenger, are superbly good at doing is taking long range uh, shots at other tanks and killing them 24 hours a day. They have superb night vision systems, all of them. They have uh, very, very effective ammunition, all of them. Uh, You know, you can argue about whether 120 millimeter uh, smooth bore is better than uh, rifles. You can argue about whether depleted uranium is better than uh, tungsten, but but these are all superb um, penetrators. And uh, the fire control systems are excellent, and that's why Ukrainians have asked for these and been asking for them for you know the better part of nine months. That's why they matter so much to them. But they need more, and then they need to integrate them uh, into a combined arms uh, setup so that they can effectively deal with any Russian armed attack and they can counterattack without doing what the Russians did so catastrophically badly. Um, this time last year, roughly, which was to send tanks on these long columns with no infantry support. And who'd have believed it? They they got picked off by uh, Ukrainian infantry armed with n laws and javelins and the like. You can only um, stop that sort of stupid behavior by uh, integrating your IFEs with your tanks, with your artillery, uh, with any other um, indirect fire that you have. So you make it impossible, you, you, know, you, you protect the tanks from being vulnerable. And that I think is the next stage. Beyond that, and we're talking months away now, I think the question is whether the Ukrainians uh, need and uh, fixed-wing air, uh, fast air, and what benefit it might bring them. It's been a remarkable war so far because air power has been useless. The Russians have not managed to achieve air superiority. The Ukrainians have achieved very little, but they've survived, which arguably is a remarkable achievement. But all of the air stuff has been done with uh, surface-to-air missiles, uh, so air, you know, relatively fixed air defence systems, right. for which the, the you know uh, really they turned most of Ukraine into a no-fly zone, very very effectively indeed. Does giving the Ukrainians F-16s change that? Very much doubted. I don't think the battle changes that. But this is about politics as much as about uh, military uh, operations. It's about showing that the West remains committed to uh, the Ukrainian cause and to, you know, the Ukrainians getting their country back. Um, But, you know, if you want to know what changes the battle more, it's almost certainly high Mars, uh, long range strike missiles and then heavy armour.
0: I uh, I I think uh, that's uh, an an interesting view, and I was talking to a British, uh, thoughtful British analyst whose point was Ukrainian run runways are a lot rougher; they're a bit shorter. Uh, it's going to be much harder to use an F sixteen right, which needs pristine sort of you know Western style uh, runways, longer takeoff rolls, uh, and you know then the discussion went to okay, you know is the is the A ten the right kind of system, and then oh by the way, how it is that that would fit into the kind of air defense network the the Russians have created that can shoot down. uh, I think uh, Jack Wapling, uh, Dr. Jack Wapling of Russi uh, last week, you know, said that, you know, you you can have an airplane that's dozens of feet off the ground uh, and the Russians are figuring out at 100 kilometers plus how to shoot it down, uh, right? So it becomes kind of an interesting, you know, so even low level is not survivability uh, anymore than it that it once was. Um, and
2: yeah, well, which, which one goes, why helicopters have not featured since the attack on Hostomel. You know, this is a uh, right. like, fixed-wing fixed rotary wing. This has been uh, the war that air power missed out on.
0: Uh, Indeed, because neither one has uh, right necessarily the, you know, you've sort of stalled, uh, stalled it. You could argue maybe if we gave the Ukrainians better capabilities at the end of the day, they'd be able to unstall that uh, situation. But alas, we've not yet made that uh, decision. Richard, I want to bring you in in terms of your sense uh, and take. And then also want to ask you, right, Secretary Kendall did mention to us a dozen new start programs. He was very passionate about not losing a year to the Chinese, which is what a full year of CR would would do, and sort of get your sense on what you think that doesn't, right? I mean, obviously, we have a lot of investment in munitions, long-range strike. He did mention that we're going to develop a new generation of uh, weaponry while also refilling our magazines on things like JASM-ER and l uh, But first, get your air, airplane take and then get your programmatic take. Uh, as well uh, as as the brud- budget draws nigh in the in the United States,
3: yeah, you know it's um, it's sort of fascinating. Along with the tank discussion, you've had the the reemergence of a truism that I think colors the debate, which is that you can't attack without a shield, but you can't defend without a sword. Uh, in other words, the distinction between offensive and defensive is a purely artificial and political one and uh, tanks you know the decision to kind of open up the floodgates i think with tanks uh, reflects that too so in that context how could air power not be next with that comes myriad complications because of course air power is a ranged uh, capability and we our policy and the policy of others is to very cautious about selling the Ukrainian systems that allow them to strike deep into Russian territory. So that raises the question of what we do, perhaps by way of detuning radars for air to surface modes or you know what restrictions we place, or indeed, if we just say, oh, go ahead, strike away, hit Crimea and whatever else. Uh, which I should mention, of course, is uh, is technically Ukrainian, even though the Russians took it back in 2014. But still, it's part of the debate. Um, I would also say, you know, it's kind of like that book I used to read my kids. You know, if you give him house a cookie, you know, he's also going to want a glass
0: of milk or whatever else. No, oh, it's a moose and muffin. If you give a moose a muffin.
3: The moose and muffin was a classic. I agree. I will I will defend the moose and muffin uh, book of, <laughs> of the many that were published. I think she kind of ran a bit out of material, but the uh, the, the point is well taken. Uh, air power comes with a greater commitment even than ground vehicles in terms of doctrine, training, logistics, all that other stuff? How could you not deploy people who are skilled maintainers and trainers and and whatever else, possibly even in country? Not to say this is a slippery slope. I'm not worried. Um, But on the other hand, it is certainly noteworthy that if we go down that path, it's a pretty big commitment. You know, I I have no doubt that Sash is right about this being a ground war decided on the ground. But I think it's also really interesting that air power is a more strategic weapon i'm not a dig against ground pounders and certainly not at sash but you know you lose even you can lose hundreds of tanks it's not going to materially affect the balance of power you start losing serious air assets and that becomes a strategic question very quickly air power is hugely important as i think everyone knows and uh, You have the situation where there is a a qualitative edge, both in terms of people and equipment with the Ukrainians because of, you know, a a transfer, say, of F-16s and the training that goes with it. That could really affect the balance of power. And the Russians might just think, you know, this is a great way to lose any pretension of superpower status that we have left. And that's going to cause them to pull back. Uh, You know, at least that's my hope. It's kind of it would be an interesting development, to say the least.
0: Um, I I just also want to put uh, put out there that this is uh, a long range strike, but also air power uh, war the, the, the Russians are very effectively using Ukrainian long-range drones, saturating uh, Ukrainian air defenses, and then the Russians are firing their cruise missiles at targets, and it's proving to be devastating. Uh, so yeah. side is is using fires, long-range fires, w- w- long-range air power when they can. I mean, again, it was long-range air power in the form of of you know almost Soviet-era drones that they use. The Ukrainians use to target deep into Russia. Uh, right? I mean, so uh, the, the question is whether or not either side has the right capabilities at the right time to sort of do what they want to do. And so we have a slight sort of stalemate because each one has a minor advantage on one side or another that's that's complicating it, whereas we're, we're not seeing the full application uh, of, of capability to 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 your point on, on that. Um,
2: yeah, but or, Vargo, on. Vargo, that means that yep. we've got the question for us has got to be, uh, us, ask the west do we have the appetite to deliver to ukraine stuff that will be used to strike into russia because that is escalatory in a way that nothing we've done so far has been escalatory and Don't tanks come. are not escalate, escalatory um, right. you know once you give them stuff that can and really you know they would they would be brain dead not to use them to strike into russia then that is a different that's a different equi- equation
0: uh, I would completely agree with you, and I believe that that is the nature of the of the debate and discussion uh, with uh, the Ukrainians on a regular basis from a from a Washington from a Washington perspective uh, that you guys can't actually use these systems to strike into Russia, which is why you find the the Ukrainians cobbling together their own capabilities uh, when they do uh, these sorts of operations, even if it's backed by uh, Western. Uh, ultimately by Western uh, intelligence to achieve these aims. I just want to ask one quick last question. I want to bring Ron uh, into this. From a production standpoint, um, do you, what's, what's the order impact, right? I mean, we've talked about uh, munitions and refilling munition stocks, and then that's going to have a positive impact. Uh, when we hear stuff about manufacture of new vehicles and, and things like that, I mean, is this enough to move any needles, uh, ultimately for guys like GD or or others at this point, or, is, or, or are they relatively small, right? I mean, Doug Bush last week, I think, announced that we would be making 90,000 artillery shells uh, a month uh, by 2024, by fiscal 24. Um, that's a dramatic increase in production, and he thinks that's going to be sufficient to satisfy any Ukrainian need while also rebuilding American as well as allied stocks. Are we seeing, you know, what do did, what did we see in the earnings that indicate movement uh, on how this war is shaping actually on the, on the Western side of, of, of things. And that's something I'm going to ask you in a week or so uh, from a European context Sash. Go ahead, Ron. Well, you've seen it in
1: backlogs of some companies, right? I mean, you know, Raytheon's a good case in point where you've seen a, a pickup in their backlog uh, related to the restocking of you know, various missiles that have been um, taken out of US inventory and, and sent to um, Ukraine. On the um, land vehicle front, it's still an open question, right? I mean, where exactly are uh, the Abrams going to come from, or Are they going to come from, uh, you know, "quote unquote" U.S. inventory, a National Guard um, inventory, or or, or wherever. Uh, so that that's still unclear. But I think broadly, it you know, it, I think the bigger trend, if I can call it that, is right. you know, in 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 times of of budget, whatever you want to call it, the, the Army's frequently a bill pair. Uh, and right now, it it's not. At least their equipment is not. Um, so we'll see where it all goes. But um, I would expect, ultimately, um, if we're exporting Abrams um, for use in a hot zone, um, can that be you know bad from a perspective of uh, general dynamics backlog? I don't see how it would be but um, it's currently unclear exactly you know, where they're all coming from and, and how much of an impact it will ultimately have. But um, is there some restocking that ultimately will have to get done? Probably, but we'll have to see how it plays out. Uh,
0: and uh, very, very briefly uh, to uh, Richard and, and to you, Ron, right? Any, any sense what those 12 new START programs are going to be from uh, a U.S. Air Force perspective?
3: You know, from my standpoint, it's important to remember that two of the key new platforms in um in in air force land the most relevant for the you know the pacific challenges were, were meant to not just be platforms but to be complexes reconnaissance strike complexes b21 and to an extent and get and that means drones standoff munitions and whatever else for for targeting for reconnaissance drones and 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 you know, standoff missions, munitions for a variety of targets, including it turns out, maybe even maritime operations for the B twenty one. More discussion about that recently. So I expect a lot of that is you know going to be relevant. Also, we you know, there's been an astonishing lack of news flow on like the NGAD engine, which is said to be different but similar technology to ATP for uh, for F thirty five. That's uh, that's certainly of interest, and you know, everything related to um, you know. I think, strategic deployment. You know, when when uh, Frank Kendall said the KCY wasn't necessary, we're just going to stick with the KCX. Everyone knows that there's a big challenge in terms of survivability for key enablers like tankers. So is there something KCZ-ish in the works? Not directly, you know, big jet right. case easy, but you know, something that allows to us to deal with the challenges of refueling and reconcile that with survivability, which of course big jets really don't have in that context.
0: Uh, and uh, I, I don't want to tout again our uh, conversation with uh, Secretary Kendall. And that was me and J.J. Gertler, my uh, co-host on the Air Power podcast. Uh, we had the conversation together. And one of the things Secretary Kendall was saying is, we're, you know, the, the reason the investment is important now is it is a generational upgrade in the capabilities of the United States Air Force, uh, the likes of which we haven't seen in many decades to sort of set the set the service up for uh, the future. Uh, uh, Ron, any any last thought on any of any of that before we part?
1: Yeah, I mean, on the on the KCZ, um, you know, it kind of brings to mind uh, the the collaboration between L three Harris and Embraer on uh, the KC three uh, hundred and ninety, and potentially making a more, if you will, right. tactical tanker out of it. So. We'll see if something happens there, but at this vantage point, it does seem like it's something to watch.
0: Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Hope you guys have a nice day, a great end of the weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Vago. Thanks.
2: Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah,
3: great to be on. Thanks so much, Vago.